Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the words and nerds podcast on this podcast we chat about books the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world i'm your host danny v and today i welcome heather martin heather has a phd in comparative literature and has held teaching and research positions all around the world heather is a longtime jack reacher fan and the reacher guys her first biography and that is the book we're going to talk about today welcome heather Hi, Danny. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. It's lovely to have you here and you're beaming in from London at the moment and I'm from Sydney. So um, I love I love being able to use this technology to speak to people across the world. Yeah, it's an incredible thing. Certainly open doors. (laughs) Absolutely. And especially we were just talking about you're in lockdown as well. And I guess you can get a bit of Zoom fatigue, but I guess it is, it can be an outlet, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, without Zoom, I I actually haven't, we had um, a wonderful program of live events scheduled for the launch of this book, (laughs) but um, none of them happened. So Mm. without Zoom, you know, I'd be, yeah, I'd be very sad. (laughs) So it's, it's been a great boom. Yeah, no, that's great. Now, tell us about your book, The Reacher Guy. It was such an interesting read and so detailed. Give me an elevator pitch for this book. Well, I think of the book as a portrait of the artist as a young man, what compelled Jim Grant to become Lee Child. But it's also about Jack Reacher and where he comes from and explores how the stories of those three characters intersect and are intertwined. And um, one of the defining features of of Reacher is that he's elusive. He always leaves town at the end of the story, no (laughs) turning back. And Lee himself is really very similar. He's an intriguing and complex character. I love that. And you do state that very little had been written about the man himself. So what were the reasons that drew you to writing this biography? Well, of 
course, there have been plenty of column inches written yeah. about Lee Child, yeah. which is hardly surprising given the number of books he's sold. I mean, <laughs> 100 million and counting. Wow. But he himself is a reinvented character publishing under a pseudonym. And I wanted to get beyond the media myth, which is another way of saying, I wanted to get to know James Dover Grant, the boy from Birmingham in the West Midlands. I didn't actually have the idea of writing the book at all though, until I met Lee. In fact, before I met him, I'd given very little thought to the author of the Jack Reacher series. <laughs> All the name Lee Child meant to me in those days was the guarantee of a, of a good read, which in many ways, I think, made me his ideal reader. I mean, that's his dream. Um, but then when I met him, he somehow eclipsed his own larger-than-life fictional character, <laughs> presumably because he contains Reacher but isn't contained by him. You know, somehow exceeds mm. his own character, which is logical, I guess. But what triggered it on a practical level was the way from the moment we met, we met socially. And from the moment we met, he kept telling me these mini stories about his experiences growing up. Very short, you know, the length of a text or an email uh, that kind of left me wanting more. So a kind of uh, the same experience in miniature as reading a Jack Reacher book. And his life was so different from mine, which meant um, I would ask questions and that prompted more revelations. And one thing led to the next in quite an organic way until I found myself sort of writing a biography, which I think took us both by surprise, to be honest. I love that. I love how you met and I love how he, because you know when you meet someone who you admire or you've read their books or whatever and you meet them and it's it's a weird experience because you have an idea of who they are in your head. So I love that he eclipsed that because that's that's rare, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was an un a very unusual experience and I think it was great that we just got to know each other personally first before mm. the idea of, of, of some kind of formal uh, arrangement came about. Because, um, as I say, it was a very sort of organic thing. And, yeah, he was just, because uh, he sort of is Reacher, but, of course, isn't Reacher. <laughs> and um, so it was just a very intriguing um, encounter. Yeah. Mm, I love that. And I was having this conversation the other day about, you know, being on Zoom and meeting people on Zoom and through the podcast and however we've been doing it in 2020 and then meeting people in real life and the pressure to kind of live up to that curated person that you've constructed one of the reasons he sort of agreed to me doing it in the end was because uh, I think he sort of saw me as more than just a, a super fan I mean I had mm -hmm. an interest in reading and writing already obviously yeah. I'd done my had my background in literary criticism and and academics um but what inspired me um really to do the book um was Lee's own example uh, to write the book that I wanted to write in the way I wanted to write it. You know, I'd been to see him at a lot of events and I'd heard him speak a lot by this point. Um, and he always emphasised how important that was, you know, to follow your own storytelling instincts, not to follow the advice of the others, not to be <laughs> not to be put off by someone's stature or fame, mm -hmm. um, just to do what you, you know, the, the book that you felt was authentic for you. And um, kind of... I was also continually surprised by Lee. Um, he always surprises me, even now, even after I've written a sort of 500-page book about him and spent hours and hours and days and weeks talking to him. Um, 
he has a kind of idiosyncratic turn of phrase. Uh, he has a kind of way of thinking that runs counter to the orthodoxy. And I was also very inspired by the way that he takes his reader, uh, he takes the reader in general more seriously than he takes the writer, which mm. I think is very unusual among writers, mm. probably pretty rare. It's He's got this kind of view of the book as a product, which is, you know, destined for the reader. Mm. And, um, you know, on, on, a, on a kind of an analogy with a, a, a watch or a car, the product of skilled craftsmanship, something that's sort of destined to do a job and therefore has to be designed to do it as well as possible. And it has to please the reader and it has to please the maximum number of readers. And I found all that very fascinating on a you know, theoretical level and, and so different to the sort of, I mean, he, he, he sort of lacks all self-importance in terms of, you know, as an author figure, it's all about the reader and the mm. book and the product. That's very interesting. I like yeah. that. Yeah, because you're right. You know, writers, you know, rightfully so, focus on the writing and the process, but to focus on the reader is interesting because I often have this conversation about once you put your book in the world, it's no longer yours, it's the readers and how they Absolutely. look at it and perceive it and, you know, love it and digest it. And that has exactly. to do with their context and their place in the world. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and Lee takes that whole process very, very seriously. Mm. Um, you know, he's sort of... Uh, he particularly liked, there's one photograph in the biography, um, it's the last one in the in the um, plate sections, actually, I'm not sure it's, not sure they're in the paperback, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, there's a photograph in the biography of him that I took uh, in his apartment in Manhattan, but he's reflected in a mirror. And he said to me, and it was by chance that I took that photograph. I didn't take many because it, you know, it seemed a bit intrusive. And actually, I don't think he liked being photographed that much. But um, uh, he, he said he really liked that photograph because it put some distance between him and the reader. And that was the kind of author photo. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> That's the one, yeah, absolutely, which evokes his apartment and his lifestyle. But also he just said he really liked that it put that distance mm. between me as the biographer and him as the subject, which he thought kind of mirrored the distance between uh, the author and the reader, that mm. what matters is the book and that the book is there and the book is there for the reader and, and it, that's what's under examination and the, 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 the writer is somehow there in the background, a bit shadowy, a shadowy figure in the background. So I found that all very intriguing. A very mysterious man. <laughs> And what I loved early on in the book, Lee argues that storytelling is vital to our survival and he made a persuasive intellectual case for the human importance of his chosen profession. I love that. Talk to me about that. I think that is really important uh, for him, insight about the, the um, you know, why he's doing what he does. Um, and one, I think, very underappreciated fact about Lee is that he's a brilliant essayist. Um, he's written more than one brilliant essay on this very theme, uh, one short one for the New Yorker in 2016 called The Frightening Power of Fiction, and a book length one in 2019 called The Hero, both of which I highly recommend. Uh, but the key point is his emphasis precisely on storytelling. He may have written upwards of, I think, around two and a half million words. Wow. But if you ask him to, I know it's incredible, but the statistics are all incredible. But if you ask him to sum up his career, he, he would say, as he did to me, I've told 24 decent stories in my life. 
again that's self-deprecating really you know like it's just chatting after dinner or something or sitting with the camper I've told 24 decent stories in my life not written 24 novels and the importance of that for him is that storytelling goes back much much further than writing he's fascinated um by the logic of evolution and the way he sees it um, when language progressed beyond the most basic exchange of information it must have been for a reason and that reason must have served the purpose of empowering and emboldening the tribe so as to maximize their chances of survival so you know for example his go-to um, anecdote would be instead of running scared and the saber tooth and hiding away in the cave, you would listen to the story told around the campfire about whichever man or woman finally fought the saber tooth, stood up to the saber tooth, survived and got away. Um, and that would have you kind of whooping and cheering and believing in the possibility of overcoming difficult odds. And for him, that's the kind of archetypal story, which is why he always argues, and this is an example of what I was saying earlier when I said his thinking is often very surprising and runs counter to the orthodoxy, but that's why he says that for him, he sees the thriller as the archetypal story. Mm. You know, people, people sometimes dismiss, oh, it's just genre fiction. He said, no, that is the basic story, <laughs> the one that helped us, you know, back when we needed the imagination and inspiration to get out there and, and, and fight. Um, <sighs> I mean, obviously we turn to, to sort of fiction for escape from a harsh reality and for comfort and for consolation, but also for inspiration for an example. And, for, and he, he often uses the word empowerment in that context. Mm. I think that was certainly true for him. And he, like many of us, he escaped in books as a child, but I think to an, to an extreme degree. I love without, that. Books, you know, without books, I mean, I, he, he would say he wouldn't have survived. <laughs> yeah, I think that's for many of us, actually. But I love the idea yeah. of, of consolation and um, reflection, you know, reflection yeah. about you know, things that you can't work out in your head and sometimes reading fiction can help you work out the world or work out what's bothering you. Absolutely, yeah. Now, Lee, is I'm, I'm convinced he's some kind of genius after speaking to you and reading the book and then... And then he says Lee is known for writing one draft, which is obviously ridiculous. And he goes where the story takes him without planning, but rides on this strong first sentence. Now, I know so many writers who listen to this podcast are just going to throw their hands up in the air and say, are you kidding me? One draft. <laughs> but can you tell me about what you know about his writing process? Because it is, it's amazing. It is amazing. And, and kind of, as you say, obviously ridiculous or incredible. <laughs> I know what you mean. But essentially what I found out in working with him closely and talking to him is that it's true. Wow. With certain, with certain important qualifications. I mean, first off, it's very in keeping with his character. He's not very much given to nostalgia, which, you know, is kind of tricky when you're working on a biography. <laughs> and like me, he prefers to sort of look forward rather than backwards. I mean, in life, you can't go backwards. He's strictly, he's a very rational man. So he applies that logic to his writing as well. So he, he always says, I can't go back and change 
things because that would falsify Reacher's reality. I wow. mean, that stuff's really happened. I can't change it. But also because it would kind of disrupt the flow of his own writing and, and he suspects it would cause further unseen snarl-ups down the road. Um, if you tamper with the past, it's that whole idea of you can't go back and tamper with the past. But um, as a consequence, of course, uh, he does write very slowly, mm -hmm. um, typically no more than, you know, maybe 2,000 words a day, often less, with plenty of time for thinking and musing and daydreaming. And also, and I think this is really important and, and kind of instructive and possibly helpful for many writers, um, he begins every single writing day by rereading and fine-tuning what he wrote the day before. Mm -hmm. So the truth is it's all redrafted mm -hmm. at least once. Yeah. But he does that during the writing process. He goes yep. along. Yeah. And if he runs into a problem in the course of writing a book, he sees it as a problem that Reacher has run into and that <laughs> Reacher has to solve, which of course is something Reacher's very good at. So it's a kind of trick he plays on his brain. Um, but the other thing I would say about it, and you know, it's self-evident in a way, but it's worth saying that that approach only works. It's, it's the combination of, um, it's a combination of skill and confidence honed over decades, not only as a writer, but as someone who worked for nearly um, 20 years in television, mm -hmm. you know, so he's that sort of, 40 years of being around storytelling on top of an, the first 20 years of writing. So it's, it's something that, um, you know, arises out of decades of experience. It's not how he wrote his first book. And Killing Floor, one of, one of the things you'll have um, uh, learned from the biography is that I spent a lot of time in the archive. And the great thing about that was that I got to see, I think I was the first person really to see for many a long year anyway, the manuscript of his first book. And when I say manuscript, of course, there were many manuscripts, so many iterations. I mean, he wrote it all out by hand two or three times. Wow. First in pencil, then in blue, blue ink. <laughs> then he typed it up and sent it off to his agent. And, you know, it got, re it got reviewed and revised a bit at that stage. And then when it was finally accepted by um, his first publisher, that book uh, was radically uh, re redrafted at the level of plot. So, you know, he didn't, he, he, he hit the ground running, sure, relatively speaking, but he still had to work at it very hard. And that, that skill that he's developed of being able to follow, jump on that, ride that first sentence like mm. a wave through to the end of the book, 100,000 words later, um, is something that he's developed over a, over many years of experience. He's got a great sense of timing, and I think that goes back to his days in television as well. Um, so you know, he's got this great sense of that the rhythm of his book and 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 how close or how far he is from the end, and how to sort of pace himself as he goes. Mm -hmm. So he always ends up, you know, okay, hundred thousand words, I'm done. <laughs> it's it's absolutely fascinating and I think you know obviously not every writer is going to be able to write like that but I think what yeah. you can take away from it is you know looking at um you know revising what you did last time and then going into it and writing as many words as you can and I really like the idea I mean you know I think most writers are always going to go back and redraft but just the idea of you can't change the past is so yeah. interesting isn't it yeah I mean I actually 
to be fair, because a biography is a big project and I didn't do what a lot of people assumed I would do, which is map it all out in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously, in a way, you've got the beginning, the middle and the end, you've got birth, life and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, well, not death in this case, but that kind of ending, natural ending. And uh, so there was some, there's an obvious trajectory, but I did kind of embrace his approach because I, I felt what I had was a really good opening um, in, in the little town of Otley where his grandparents lived and where he was happiest as a boy back in York Yorkshire. And I sort of, I, I was really happy with the idea of starting the story there. So I just jumped in and wrote that first chapter, which tied in with the library and his love of reading and storytelling from a very early age. Um, and then, you know, by the time I got to the end of that chapter, it had given me an idea for the second chapter, <laughs> so I, I, I went on and, and what I found was so long as I had a kind of key image or idea or concept um, or moment in time, something, some key detail that to get me started on each chapter that would see me through the end to the end of that chapter mm -hmm. and suggest the next one to me. So in a kind of small way, I did, I did, I did experiment with this approach. And, and, it, and it worked for me. And uh, it was actually very pleasurable because you had this sort of sense of discovery as you were going along. Oh yeah, no, I, I think I can go there now. It's <laughs> oh, remarkable. <laughs> Lovely feeling. But you liked his books and that's, you know, first what sort of drew you to the man. Um, what, what do you think, why do you think people are drawn to this series? Like you talked about a hundred million books being sold. What draws people do you think to, to his series? Well, it's a little of what we were talking about before. At the level of plot, I'd say it's because Reacher enacts the kind of black and white moral justice that eludes mm -hmm. and must elude us in reality, which is satisfying and cathartic. I mean, real life, as we all know, is full of grey areas, full of loose ends and disempowerment and frustration and wish fulfilment fiction of this type resolves them. So there's that. But... For, for Lee, definitely, um, plot is secondary and characters what is, is what is most important. Um, but I think all that would mean nothing were it not for the skill of the storytelling. So I think really, even though people don't tend to put it in these terms and they always talk about the plot and they always talk about the character, I think it's something about his writing style, mm -hmm. his command of dialogue, his command of suspense, his sense of timing and rhythm. And, and also a lot of these books have got quite a broad historical sweep. There's an obsessive attention to detail. There's some surprisingly evocative description of landscape, some poetic touches, some painterly touches. So I think it's some combination of all those things that casts a spell and, and keeps us coming back for more. Um, in other words, I. Basically, I'm saying it's something about Lee Child himself, mm -hmm. which I suppose is another way of answering your question of why <laughs> I wanted to do the biography. I mean, people are often very glib in asserting that his voice is easy to mimic, but I don't actually think that's true at all without descending into fan fiction or, or parody. I think there's some kind of, you know, divine madness to his voice mm. that's actually impossible. To, to reproduce because, you know, he's always surprising you. Yeah. I mean, he'll have Reacher coming out with him Greek etymology just before he launches into a fight scene or something, things that you don't expect. 
you know, analysing the word Xerox and whatever. <laughs> Divine <laughs> madness with a bit of genius. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> well-educated guy, of course, well-educated and well-read, no mm. denying that. And he draws on all that, you know, and, and, and it pours into his books. Mm. Now, something I found really fascinating is that the word alone is really significant across the Reacher books. I mean, Reacher travels alone, the victims are alone, roads are lonely, and I think I think there might have been like a number of how many how many times alone appeared in all these books, which was huge. Can you unpack this for us? Mm, I can't remember the number either, but um, mm. he's not shy of repetition in general, and I think that's a, a, a really defining um, feature of his style and one of the things that gives it a musical quality. But um, I think that emphasis on solitude is, an, is another element of the appeal for readers when Reacher moves on at the end of each book, sometimes leaving behind a woman he genuinely loves. They feel a little bit of heartbreak on his behalf. <laughs> um, it's pretty subtle, um, like at the start of The Midnight Line, his 22nd book, where Reacher is in a dangerously bad mood because he can't get Chang from the previous book, Make Me Out of His Mind. So we, we kind of feel for his loneliness, but at the same time, we definitely don't want him to set down, <laughs> um, which is a, another element of that genius. I think he gets us emotionally entangled, um, but always defers the promise of any resolution. Um, but towards the end, to, to answer your question more directly, towards the end of his solo writing career, Lee collaborated on uh, with some musician friends on an album of songs called Just the Clothes on My Back which includes a track with the lines, I was born alone, I have lived alone, I will die alone. I mean, his autobiography <laughs> in 12 words, he doesn't sort of pull any existential punches. Um, no doubt it's a part, partly a consequence of feeling uh, rejected by his parents and then sort of exacerbated um, but, well, he had a kind of near brush with death as a boy as well from rheumatic fever as a seven-year-old boy. And then the whole thing's kind of exacerbated by the built-in solitude of his chosen profession as a writer. Mm -hmm. But there's absolutely no denying that Lee Child sees uh, that essential loneliness as a fact of the human condition. And like Reacher, he worries about it from time to time and he enjoys company. Um, but also like Reacher, he's mostly okay with it. And, you know, happy just to get on with things. And anyone with his kind of capacity for, re for reading, I guess, is liable to be relatively self-sufficient. He's, as I said before, he's supremely rational, not one, away, not, not one to sort of run away from the facts. And um, looking at photographs of himself, he once described to me the look in his eyes as he got older, as he grew up, as guarded, like he was waiting to see who or what uh, might disappoint or betray him next. So pretty bleak, but hey, a fun guy to hang out with all the same. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely fascinating, a whole lot. Now, I always ask uh, writers who come onto the podcast the, the final question, and this is for you, Heather. Why do you write? <laughs> yeah, the questions about me are harder, of course. <laughs> <laughs> they always are. I like Lee, I, I like making things. You know, there's a satisfaction uh, to the process. And I really, above all, enjoyed the process of writing the book. Uh, and that, I think, is because I found it so deeply absorbing because it fully engages, you know, 
both my intellect and, and my emotions. And that's very satisfying. It shuts out the noise of the world, I guess. Um, but like I said earlier, I wrote this particular book out of a sense of compulsion. I mean, once the idea took hold, I just couldn't shake it off. And sometimes interviewers ask Lee or have asked Lee, you know, since we, since the book came out, it sometimes asked him what made him agree to it. And I remember one time he answered, I doubt I could have stopped her. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. May as well embrace it. <laughs> it was very, yeah, exactly. But it was very gracious of him to go along with it. Honestly. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. And thank you so much for joining me to talk about this such remarkable book with so much detail in it. It was a fascinating read about, you know, the man, Lee Child, an extraordinary writer whose influence has been far reaching and whose uh, writing process will haunt me forever. So thank you. Well, thanks very much for reading it and, you know, for having me on to talk about it. It's a great pleasure.